0: Hi, I am Tony Hines and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast all about supply chain advantage stay tuned we have a great program for you today I'll be back in a moment well renew Reuse, recycle, repurpose, sustainability, and the circular economy. That's what I'm going to talk about right now. We need perhaps to rethink and reimagine the real world and the systems and the links in the systems in that real world that create our experiences and give us our understanding of the world we live in and these are dynamic systems the living systems it's the ecology it's the environment it's the oceans it's the planet and so when it comes to focusing attention on doing least damage to the planet so that we can have an environment to live in economic thinking is less helpful Industrialization took place about the same time that uh, economics was beginning to take hold in our thinking about the way the world works. And economists, early economists such as Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and others, began to think mechanistically about the way that world worked. And industrial society is what's become known as degenerative, meaning that we take resources, maybe metal out of the ground, and we work with those metals through industrial processes to turn them into something useful in machines that we develop, or use materials to create other products that we want. So that degeneration, it depletes the metal once we take it away, it's no longer in raw form, it's gone into a process that's manufactured and turned into something else, And at the end of its useful life as a product that we initially wanted, it has to be got rid of. And in the process of decommissioning plant or equipment, then we have to obviously have processes in place that deal with waste. Industrial society is what we refer to as the take, make, use and lose economy. We take energy, we take materials, we make something, we use it, and then we lose it. We waste heat. And we waste matter or material. So that's what the take, make, use and lose economy looks like. So for example, we might extract oil, coal, gas and other materials such as metals from the ground. And in the case of energy, oil, coal and gas that we pull from under land or under sea in the extraction process, we burn it and we create carbon dioxide which goes into the atmosphere. Turning nitrogen and phosphorus into fertilizer and offloading it as effluent from agricultural runoff and sewage is something else we do. We take up the forests and we mine the metal and the minerals and we create products. And then we produce goods that we might also turn into some form of waste, which could be e-waste in the case of computers and electrical goods. Or it could be toxic chemicals that leak out into the soil, the water and the air. Now, in economics, they recognise the potential damaging effects of what they call negative externalities, which is what these are classified as. And Coase, of course, had a theorem to deal with it through taxation policy. And he suggested that anybody that created this kind of pollution should be taxed so that the person the organisation creating the problem pays the price so again it was done through our market mechanism there is however a problem of using taxation policy as a means of dealing with externalities and it's simply this we allow the market to decide how much pollution is acceptable or how much pollution we should choose To have. Now you can see right away this is a serious issue because if the market's deciding, that market mechanism takes no account of the damage that's being done to the planet. It simply makes an adjustment on price and cost. We can agree that the taxation policy is, of course, better than nothing because it might push up the price of oil, the price of gas, and it might limit the demand through price and the pricing mechanism so that customers and consumers choose to use less of the damaging good. And that has a lower impact on the planet. But it doesn't really address the fundamental problem. Carbon taxes and taxes on other forms of pollution may be used as an instrument of policy, but we have to deal with and tackle the real problem. And this requires a different attitude, both from the supplier and the customer and people living in the world. So there's a different form of understanding... That changes the arrangements in the system. Now, what's different in the circular economy is we take renewable materials, and when we make things, we think regeneratively at every stage. And so, what that means, we regenerate and capture value at each stage where decomposition takes place in those materials. And whether that's biological nutrients or technical nutrients, we think in a different way about the way in which materials flow through the system. So regenerate and restore is the focus. And when we talk about restoring, we think repair, reuse, refurbish, recycle. And this way, we have minimum loss, both in energy terms and in the material. Now, back in 2020, I wrote an article entitled Time for the Resource Reset. And in this article... I spoke about a time for reflection and reflexivity. A time in which, during the pandemic, we became digitally connected but socially remote. And that was our COVID-19 experience. And we needed to change the way we think. So I made a case for how that could happen. And I was particularly concerned with looking at the circular economy and taking some of the ideas from Kate Raworth's book on donut economics which I can recommend to all listeners to go and read. And in that particular donut economics, it talks about having different layers. So we have a a social foundation, which is built around water, food, health, education, work and income, peace and justice, political voice, social equity, gender and racial equality, housing, networks and energy. So we've got energy, water and food at the centre of our social foundation because that's the stuff of life, isn't it? And beyond that, we have in the donut the ecological ceiling. And that's the link where we've got safe and just space for humanity to grow. And it's a space in which we can have a regenerative and distributive economy. So a place where we can do things but we don't do damage. So we don't uh, affect climate, we don't acidify the oceans, we don't pollute the atmosphere with chemicals or nitrogen and phosphate, we don't deplete the water supplies, we don't convert too much land, we don't lose biodiversity, we control air pollution, and we don't have ozone layer depletion. And all those things take place at the outer limit of the donut. So we can learn to do things differently. And we can imagine a world, a moment of truth, in which we have cleaner forever, little or no noise pollution, no chemical pollution, no plastic or chemical waste in the oceans. We can have equality of gender, equality of race, protecting the planet for future generations. And it can move us to the kind of Donut economics in which there's justice, peace, health and prosperity for all, without plundering the resources of the planet, which benefits the few. Some research I did on this topic for consuming future reveals changing consumer attitudes, and there are four trends driving the resource reset that I talked about. There's concern for the environment and the impact on climate change, sustainability and sustainable practices, eradicating waste, preserving and replenishing the planet's resources for future generations, ethical business practices, eradicating exploitation, and of course paying people fairly for the work that they do, transparency and governance of digital supply networks, all of which are very pertinent to the textile and clothing industry, which I was writing about at that time. So let's look at what needs to change. Back in 1987, the Brundtland Report commissioned by the United Nations, Our Common Future, set out the first statement on sustainable development. And it was to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of the future. And if we think about that, that simple statement is really what the circular economy has to focus attention on. Since 1987 we've had rising world temperatures, each decade warmer than the previous three decades, we've had polar ice caps and glaciers melting, we've got rising sea levels and more extreme weather conditions, heat waves, droughts lasting longer, more tsunamis, flash floods and of course forest fires amongst other things. Scientists agree that these changes are strongly linked with industrial activity. Carbon dioxide emissions are 45% higher than pre-industrial levels. According to the United Kingdom government, the ocean's chemistry is changing, absorbing a third of excess carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere. and This is causing the oceans to become acidic, producing acid rain. The next two segments, which are coming along right now are part of the video cast and the charts I refer to can be seen on the link I'll provide in the show notes. Well, the chart on your screen right now I put together for an article I wrote for textiles in 2020. And you can see here sustainable textiles and clothing and you can see the actions that we could take and the impact it might have. Obviously, of course, if we all consume less, that would be better for everybody. But if we look at some of the actions, we could reduce water usage in growth, in conversion processes, manufacturing, and in washing and dyeing. And that would release more water for drinking. We could reduce land use and the use of pesticides and herbicides, for example, in cotton growth. That would bring less damage to human nervous and immune systems, cancer, reproductive harm, obesity, diabetes, endocrine disruption, and less damage to wildlife. We could stop polluting rivers and sea, keep the water clean, stop all the plastics flowing into the water. More clean water, healthier ecosystems, better for life everywhere, less damaging. We could reduce waste from dyes, polymers, cotton, wool, and we could reduce landfill for clothing and textile products at the end of their life. We could reuse, recycle, and repurpose things. That would bring cleaner rivers, cleaner water, less sea contamination, healthier fish, reduced pollution of the food chain, less plastic waste, less hazardous and poisonous waste affecting animal and human health. We could reduce fibre waste, and we could contain fibres in the washing process that are technologies and systems available to contain that fibre waste so that we don't release polyester fibres into rivers and water. We could have less landfill, fewer microfibres leaking plastic particles into the environment and that would be better for everyone's health and of course the broader environment and ecosystem. We could reduce the use of waste from fossil fuels, saving energy, use renewable energy sources And reduce greenhouse gases and that would achieve all the targets that have been set by the IPCC for 2050 so we could stop or slow down climate change we could stop ozone layer depletion we could reduce acid rain that forms from all the pollutants that enter the ocean we could reduce air pollution we could reduce nitrogen carbon and phosphates So those are some practical actions that we could take to achieve supply chain advantage. And why do I say it gives supply chain advantage? Well, not only does it make healthier lives, preserve the planet and protect people, it actually lowers cost. Once the investment's been made and once you begin to look at cost in in profit terms, it will lower cost. And not only will it lower cost, but it also ensures that we preserve resources for future generations and that's going to be a good thing so there's lots of things we can do in the supply chain well to understand supply chains you have to understand the context the broader context in which those supply chains take place And I was thinking and reflecting back to what changes we've seen in the past 70 years. And particularly thinking about sustainability and our environment and the way in which that's changed and is still changing. So I'd like to just briefly talk about that. You can see in the picture, in just 70 years, between 1950 and 2020, some of the changes that have taken place in the world. The first one is about population population has increased by a factor of three and that's having all kinds of impact on resources including water use land use and of course climate change we need more land to feed people and we need more water to feed people as well and to grow plants and with the population forecast to rise to about nine billion by the half point of the century then that's going to increase that pressure on land and water usage. Fresh water that's been used since 1950, it was 73 million cubic metres per capita. And in 2015, it was almost 4 million cubic metres per capita. And we've also seen energy use increase. And you can see the figures in the table of how that's increased. Increased by a factor of seven times since 1950. And of course, that increased demand needs supply to match. And it's one of the problems that we currently have with energy price rises and the limits to use regenerative sources to increase energy. The other thing that's happened, we use far more fertilisers than we did back in the 1950s. There's 10 times more fertiliser now with nitrogen and phosphates. And if we think about the use of those particular chemicals, That adds pollution to the atmosphere and to our environment. It depletes soil quality. It affects rivers and seas, and so water degradation. And of course, it forms acid rain. So if we could use much less fertiliser with those harmful chemicals, it would be much better for everyone. And if we look at the measure of world gross domestic product, these are the national incomes of all countries in the world you can see how those have increased with the obsession on growth, growth in the economy. And you can read about the impact on human activity on the right-hand side of that table. We have climate change, more extremes of weather and weather events, sea levels rising, increased CO2 emissions deforestation, increased nitrogen levels, acid rain, increased phosphate, erode soil quality, 12.7 million tonnes of plastic in the ocean and we need policies that take action to lower the impact of these changes. We need to design out waste and pollution, keep products and materials in use and regenerate natural systems and that's the way in which we can increase supply chain advantage. All of those changes have an impact on our supply chain and we need to think how the supply chains that we design and develop impact all of those matters in future. So that's it for this short piece, short briefing about the change that's occurred in our environment in the world during the past 70 years. In summary, everybody that works in supply chains or manages supply chains can do something that improves our welfare when it comes to sustainability and the circular economy. And that might start with extraction of minerals from the ground or the way in which we extract energy from the land or under the sea. And it may be that we look for more renewable sources of energy which reduce the dependency on fossil fuels and eventually eradicate the need to use fossil fuel. It may also be the case with water usage that we think about keeping that water clean to begin with. We don't pollute it. We don't contaminate the water. So it's available for drinking water and it's available for use by humans and other creatures on the planet. Also, when it comes to procurement and procurement decisions, we can manage those in such a way that we ensure that any resources that we use in our productive processes do not harm the planet. And we can rethink, repurpose, reconfigure and renew. And the one thing we have to do is manage waste more effectively. Any waste needs to be examined carefully, reprocessed and reused in some way For positive change. And waste in supply chains, we've always been concerned with through the Kaizen process, looking at the waste that we have of people's time in flows, or through the waste in production processes, or through any other sort of waste the Mura, the Murai, and the Muda. So it really is time for change, time to rethink, and time to do things differently. And in the manufacturing processes, we can think about how we can design systems and design processes to do those things in a better way that doesn't consume the future resources. And when we think about our ability to do this, the technology exists in many cases, but we need to harness it better and we need to develop things better and we need to invest in the research to understand how we can do these things much better than we currently do. So that's an issue. We also know that packaging materials need to be carefully thought through, how we package goods and how we move goods around the planet, whether it's in containers, 80% currently, plus of all goods travel by container ship, and that's putting pressure on resources And those ships generally use diesel oil, but we could change the way we power those ships and we could think about reconfiguring the distances that those ships travel and design networks that are shorter to reduce journey times and reduce the associated pollution. We could also think about the agricultural sector and the food systems and how we reduce the nitrogen and and phosphate that goes into fertilisers, and look at ways to lower the use of fertilisers, pesticides, so that we don't have runoff into rivers and degradation of soil, that we preserve the assets that we have. And so there's plenty of things that we can do in the supply chain. We can look at the choices we make about transportation, whether it's by road, by rail, or by ship, and each one of us can do more than we do Currently, to provide that better future. So, I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. You've been listening to Chain Reaction. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Chain Reaction is written, produced, and presented by Tony Hines. to tell you about the chain reaction podcast all about supply chain advantage